Church, will you just extend a hand as we, as we pray for Katie that um, as she gets ready to share the word. Heavenly Father, we just thank you for, for Katie. Lord, we just thank you for what you're doing in her. Lord, we just pray that your spirit would work in her and through her as she shares what you've laid on her heart today, Lord. We just thank you for that. Would you open our ears and our hearts for what she has to share with us today? In your precious name we pray. Amen. How's everybody doing? Great. Great. So today we are kicking off a new sermon series, as Ben said, on our relational values. We as a church and as a movement of Antioch New England churches have a goal to express our devotion to the Father and to Jesus' heart for people as expressed by the following values. And we have six of them. Passionate worship, humble service, authentic relationships, honoring collaboration, courageous generosity, and radical compassion. So today, I have the privilege to unpack what we mean by valuing passionate worship. I bet even as I said those words, passionate worship, thoughts already came to your mind. <laughs> so before I, get, before I get into it, I just want to tell you a little story about my church background. And I, I would love for you to receive this with like a spirit of like, I am not, I'm not judging any different church um, expression of worship. So just telling you a little bit about myself. I grew up in a Lutheran church. If you're not familiar with that type of church, it's liturgical, like Catholics or Episcopals. Episcopals. Um, so there was a script for everything you would say and do. There was a hymnal that we would sing from. And you were supposed to sit, stand, and kneel at specific times. Some of you might be familiar with this, and some of you may not have never experienced this. I remember the pride that I felt when I had the liturgy memorized. Like, I could stand there, and I could say the whole thing without looking. So I was like, yep, I'm a, I'm a churchgoer. I know, I know the words. It was a pretty structured service, not much like what we experience here. There also weren't many hands raised during singing. I, I think hymnals prohibited that, but there's nothing wrong with hymnals. I love them. Um, but, you know, there was mostly this. But I remember there was one woman, and we stopped going to that church when I was about 16 years old um, for a variety of reasons, but... I, I don't, so I don't remember a lot of the people. I'm, ben said I was young. I feel like I'm starting to get old because I can't picture people. But I had this very clear, distinct memory of this one woman who would sing like this. And it just, I mean, it stood out to me because it was unusual. It wasn't what was happening um, typically in our services. So to many of us, that might not seem odd to see someone raise their hands in worship. It doesn't seem odd to me now. 
But I didn't grow up around many people who expressed their worship in that way. So when I was a kid, it really stood out to me. When I look back and think about that woman, there was something passionate about her expression of worship to God. Now, again, before you think I'm going to tell you, there is one way to worship God passionately, and it has to involve raising your hands. Please know that is not the focus of what I'm going to say. When we think about worship, many of us think about what we do when we sing songs to God. For a lot of us, our church backgrounds and experiences inform what we think about worship. Singing and raising our hands is one expression of our worship to God. And the way we express our praise and adoration to God can involve moving our bodies. But that isn't the whole thing. Worship is so much more. So this morning, I want for us to go beyond our experiences and beyond our culture and maybe even beyond what we do here and look at the Bible. Let's look at the Word of God to see what it says about our worship. So what, what is worship? The dictionary says it's to show reverence and adoration for a deity, honor with religious rites. I also thought it was interesting that just the etymology of the word worship in English comes from Old English worthship. It's like declaring the worth of God. So simply I would say worship is declaring God's worthiness, declaring his worth. So what was that thing that came to your mind the first time, you know, the first time I mentioned we were talking about worship? I think a lot of us, when we think about worship, we think about that 20 to 30 minute chunk at the beginning of our service when we sing our songs to God. That is our worship time, right? We try to be intentional about saying, hey, we're continuing in our worship as we take communion. We're continuing in our worship as we give So singing is a beautiful way to declare who God is and to pour out our love for him individually and corporately. And while that is one way we can declare God's worth, it isn't the only way. In fact, I think we are missing the point of worship if that is all that we think of. And that is the only time and way that we worship God. So I think that humans are natural worshipers. People worship, whether you're a believer or not, people worship many things and many people. Just think of how our society treats celebrities. How we act when we're at a concert seeing our favorite artist. I I, I think of like when the Beatles came out and like the swarms of people and the screaming and just like the obsession. Think about people watching their favorite sports teams. 
So I believe that God created us to worship, to worship the one true living God. People are always worshiping something. If it's not God, then it's something else or someone else. I'm not going to go, I'm not going to talk a lot about idolatry today. That's not really where I'm going. But I'm just going to, what, what is true worship? What does it look like? What do we see in the Bible? So, the first thing I want to say about true worship is that we see it grounded in truth and led by the Spirit. So the first um, passage we're going to look at is John chapter 4, 20, verses 20 to 24. And we'll have it up here. So you can turn there if you'd like or just follow along. Our fathers, this is a, a woman, a Samaritan woman speaking. Our fathers worshipped on this mountain, but you say that in Jerusalem is the place where people ought to worship. Jesus said to her, Woman, believe me, the hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. You worship what you do not know. We worship what we know, for salvation is from the Jews. But the hour is coming and is now here when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth, for the Father is seeking such people to worship him. God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship in spirit, in truth. That phrase, worship him in spirit, in truth, I think sometimes maybe can be taken out of context. It's, so it's, it's not just about like when we're singing songs to God. So Jesus is talking about true worship. What does true worship look like? People will no longer need to go to a temple to worship God. That's what the Jews had to do. They had to go to a specific place to worship him. A new age is coming, has come, right? With Jesus' death, resurrection, and the outpouring of the Holy Spirit, people are the new temple, there's nothing special about the place that we gather to worship God. The Holy Spirit now dwells within people. Right? When we receive Jesus, we receive the Holy Spirit. And Christ lives in us. God's Spirit is present everywhere. And we don't need to be in a particular place to worship him. Praise God. So when he talks about worshiping in truth, God is looking for people who worship based on God's word and the truth of who he is, not based on our feelings. God never changes. He is who he is, and his character never changes. And the main truth, I think, that we are, we are supposed to remember, worshiping in spirit and truth, the truth is the gospel, right? When we come to worship God, the central theme is the gospel. When I choose songs that we're going to sing on Sunday morning, I always make sure that we are 
singing about what Jesus did. Because that is how we enter. That is how we enter into relationship with God. Theologian D.A. Carson, I don't know if any of you have heard of him. Um, this was a quote in a book that I read on worship. And he said, to worship God in spirit and in truth is first and foremost a way of saying that we must worship God by means of Christ. In him, the reality has dawned and the shadows are being swept away. Christian worship is new covenant worship. It is gospel-inspired worship. It is Christ-centered worship. It is cross focused worship. So what does that mean to have the gospel as our central focus? Well, like I said before, we need to remember that we cannot worship God without Jesus. He is the way. He is the truth. He is the life. He made a way for us to enter into God's presence. To be a part of his family. We also can't worship him without the Holy Spirit. That's the in, 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 sorry, in truth and in spirit, right? The Holy Spirit helps us in our weakness. He is active. He is present. We rely on his strength. We can't muster it up ourselves. We ask for his help. We follow his leading and his promptings. Sorry, I just want to go back for a minute. Um, so our, the little like explanation, we have on our website, you actually can see these relational values and there's like a little description under each one. I forgot to read that little description. It says, Jesus said that the Father is seeking those who worship him in spirit and in truth. We practice a life of worship that invites the presence of Jesus into all that we say and do. Right? So that's where the spirit is, right? We're inviting God. We're inviting him into everything that we do. Everything that we do can be an act of worship. All right, so that's the first, the first point, right? True worship is grounded in truth in the gospel, led by the Spirit of God. The second thing I want to say about true worship is that it is sacrificial and can be costly. It involves surrender, right? Jesus asked us to take up our cross, to deny ourselves, so the next scripture I want to read is Matthew 26, starting in verse 6. Now when Jesus was at Bethany in the house of Simon the leper, a woman came up to him with an alabaster flask, a very expensive ointment, and she poured it on his head as he reclined at table. And when the disciples saw it, they were indignant, saying, Why this waste? For this could have been sold for a huge sum and given to the poor. But Jesus, aware of this, said to them, Why do you trouble the woman? For she has done a beautiful thing for me. 
For you always have the poor with you, but you will not always have me. In pouring this ointment on my body, she has done it to prepare me for burial. Truly I say to you, wherever this gospel is proclaimed in the whole world, what she has done will also be told in memory of her. So this woman, who in another gospel is... um, stated that it's Mary, the sister of Martha and Lazarus. That's um, identified in John 12. So this, this story is actually told in three different Gospels. They all have a little bit of a different feel, but the same thing's happening. Um, so she used an extremely expensive oil to anoint Jesus. This was not the common household oil that would usually be used for guests. We should like take ourselves back to a different time period where like we don't anoint people with oil when they enter our home. Jesus declares that this was a beautiful thing that she did. And it literally cost something. It cost a lot. It was expensive. And it was this act of devotion that cost actual money but it also cost her her dignity, right? They were looking down on her for this action. She was being judged. Um, There's this book I read by Jeremy Riddle. I don't know if any of you are familiar with him. He's written a lot of worship songs that you probably have sung. um, His book is called The Reset. And he takes a really hard look at worship culture in the church. Um, And so he talks a lot about what he calls pure worship. We must grasp this, is what he says. Pure worship has nothing to gain in the realm of popularity. It only hopes to touch the heart to win the heart of the one it is worshiping. It is never driven by the benefit it gets. It is so blinded by the depth of its love, it cannot possibly adhere to what the social norms of the day deem to be acceptable. How many things do we do in worship that cost us nothing? How many things don't we do because it will cost us something? When we begin to step beyond our comfort zones, beyond how emotional we're feeling in the moment, beyond whatever has become customary in normal response in worship, and begin to give him that which costs us something, we will begin to discover purity in worship. To offer God our dignity, our self-respect, our personal, emotional, financial comfort is to offer him something costly. This is pleasing to his heart. Jesus is worth it. He is worth everything. He is our everything. He is who has given us life and continues to sustain our life and has given us new life in him. So that's the second point. True worship is costly, requires sacrifice. 
The third thing I want to say about true worship is that it involves the whole body. It involves all of us. When, when I say the whole body, I'm actually talking about two different things. I'm talking about our, our whole selves, our whole being, mind, body, soul, and the whole body corporately. So the next scripture I want to look at is Romans 12. And the first verse says, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. We are to give our whole selves, body and soul, to God. We offer our whole lives to him because of his saving grace. Our worship isn't just meant to be our acts of devotion and adoration, like the songs that we sing, or our bowing down in reverence, but it is everything we do in light of his grace and love. John 14, 21, Jesus says, whoever has my commandments and keeps them, he it is who loves me. And he who loves me will be loved by my Father, and I will love him and manifest myself to him. Keeping God's commandments is showing our love to him. That is our act of worship. Keeping God's commandments is loving Jesus. Obedience to Christ is our act of love to God, for God. So as I said, when we think about our obedience to Christ and presenting our bodies as a living sacrifice, as worship, it makes it clear that everything in our lives can be an act of worship. I say can be, right? Washing the dishes in my house, I think, can be an act of worship. Now, if I am saying, fine, I'll do the dishes, doing the dishes with hatred in my heart because nobody else did them. I'm not saying this happens. I'm just giving an example. <laughs> That's not worship. But if I do the dishes with like gratefulness in my heart that I, number one, have running water and a family to wash dishes for you know, with a grateful heart to God, that can be an act of worship. And I'm, I'm loving my, my family by doing the dishes for them. So I think everything we do can be an act of worship if it's done in the right heart attitude. So our work, the way we handle our finances and our giving, the way we love our families and our friends and our enemies, the way we spend our time and what we think about, the way we care for the lost and the broken, the poor, the oppressed. Everything we do in service to God is an act of worship. So when I said that true worship involves the whole body, it doesn't just involve our bodies individually, but it involves the whole body of Christ. And we talked last week a lot about unity 
and we prayed before this service about it, and we, we're just going to keep hitting it. Jesus is looking for unity in the church. So worship isn't just an individual thing. It's not something we just do on our own, right? It is important that we gather together corporately to worship God. God is in our midst when we gather corporately. He says that in his word. I also just want to quickly touch on the rest of that Romans 12 um, section. So after verses 1 and 2, verses 3 through 8, of course, I did not put it in my notes, but it's up here. So I'll look up here. For by the grace given to me, I say to everyone among you, not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think, but to think with sober judgment, each according to the measure of faith that God has assigned. For as in one body, we have many members, and the members do not all have the same function. So we, though many, are one body in Christ, and individually members of one another. Having gifts that differ according to the grace given to us, let us use them. If prophecy in proportion to our faith, if service in our serving, the one who teaches in his teaching, the one who exhorts in his exhortation, the one who contributes in generosity, the one who leads with zeal, the one who does acts of mercy with cheerfulness. So when we are all using the gifts that God has given us, and I'm just like, as I'm reading that, I'm just thinking of different ones of you who have these different gifts. It is just a beautiful thing that's worked out, right? It's an act of worship to God. So we serve God, we love each other when we, and this is all worked out in the church body. Okay, I have two more things. Bear with me. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to go through this super fast. <laughs> okay. I'm growing in this whole preaching thing. And it, I, I always, t- I do, I time it at home and it always is longer in real life. <laughs> okay, so last, or two things. Okay. True worship requires action, right? We just talked about all the things that we do, right? Our, our acts of worship. I also just want to talk about what we do like in our, with our bodies when we worship God, like when we're like specifically focusing on worshiping and praising God. So when we read about praise and worship in the Bible, especially in the Old Testament, you see this um, a lot in the Psalms, there's often something that people do. So I want us to think for a few minutes about how we express ourselves in worship. Um, we had this awesome teaching uh, a couple months ago. We gathered, we had an Antioch New England gathering on worship, pouring out our love to God and learning about worship. And Becky Zukowska, some of you know her, she's the worship leader at Antioch Brighton. She gave an awesome teaching on the Hebrew words for praise um, at this gathering. And she talked a lot about how what we do in worship is cultural, not necessarily biblical. In the Old Testament, um, which is originally in Hebrew, there are seven, seven words that our word praise is actually 
like seven words in Hebrew that are translated to praise. So I loved what she said about how we are created with a body, not just a soul. And what we do with our bodies actually matters. And it affects our hearts and our minds. As I said earlier, worship isn't based on our feelings. We worship based on the truth of the gospel and who God is. So, I just want to say, we can raise our hands and we can dance even when we're not feeling moved by something. This is coming from the person who is like least, I'm not like the most like crazy in my worship. I'm, I'm trying to grow. Again, not that like all outward expressions are everything, but there is something about doing something with our bodies that expresses our worship to God. So I'm just going to touch on these words. Any of you want to put up those seven words? I, I don't know how to say them properly. Samar or Samir means to sing, praise God in song and with instruments. We're pretty good at that, right? We do that every Sunday. There's a word yada, which literally means hands to God. Throwing or, yeah, shooting your hands raised up to God. It's closely, um, closely related to thanksgiving. Toda, another word connected to thanksgiving, but it's more of like a sacrifice of praise. Giving thanks to God for maybe things that already haven't already happened, but just giving thanks for who he is. The word shavak, to commend with loud praise shouts of triumph for the mercy, power, and victory of God. You can yell it out. Barak means to bless, and it encompasses kneeling, bowing down in love and submission. Tehillah which is always a corporate thing, coming together and praising. And it could also mean singing spontaneous songs. That's biblical. It's okay to just sing out something. And that's not up on the screen. You can sing your thanks and praise to God. And halal, which is connected to the word hallelujah, which actually means to rave or shine or boast, to Act foolish like a madman. You got to be careful when you're doing this because you could injure yourself. I've seen that happen. So, I, we could spend so much time on that. But I just want to say that let's be led by the word of God and our love for God and not by cultural norms or fear of man. You just focus on the Lord, and you show your worship to him, and that might look different for many of us, and that's okay. And the last thing I just want to say about true worship is that it is eternal. That's, someone asked me, what do you think is happening in heaven? I, I mean, what we see is like there's worship happening. God 
is being worshipped. The lamb who was slain is being worshipped. There is singing. There is falling down before the throne of God. There is casting down of crowns. There is action involved in this worship that will go on forever and ever in heaven. So to wrap it up, I can, I'll invite the worship team back up. True, passionate worship is grounded in truth, led by the Spirit. It costs something. It involves our whole being, the whole body of Christ. It requires action, and it is happening in heaven and will go on forever and ever. So, do you want to help transition us to response time? Um, just a couple questions I would love for you to just ponder and ask the Lord about as we sing this last song. What is God saying to you about your worship? What is one way you can pour out your life as a living sacrifice? So not just when we're singing songs, but in your, in your whole life. Are there idols in your life? Is there something or someone who has your complete devotion over God? And then the third question I just want to say, what is your next step in stepping out of your comfort zone? Maybe when you worship God on your own or here. As you think about what praise looks like biblically. That's, yeah. That's great. Thanks, Kitty. Mm -hmm. uh, two things. One, um, I just... I just want to say that uh, there's the temptation to fall into this thing of comparison, right? Um, like looking around, you know, in a corporate setting, well, that person's doing this and, and that person's doing this. And I just want to encourage you that it's not, it's not about that. It's about worshiping the Father, and there's freedom in that. And, um, and so I just want to speak against, uh, really, the, the curse of comparison. So when we start to compare, we, start to, we fall into division and things like that. And so, as Katie said, this, this is out of a heart of worship. It's out of freedom for what the Lord has done for us. And, and so we want to respond in the way that the Lord is leading us to respond. It can be raising hands. It can be dancing. It can be a deeply personal, silent reflection. This freedom. Okay? So... As we, uh, as we go ahead and enter into response time, as we sing this last song, I just encourage you to respond in the way that you would be led to do. Okay? 
It's about the heart of worship. So let's go ahead and, and sing.